we're going to read from God's Word, and this is Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to break in at verse 14. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus, and this is what he prays. For this reason, he says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And the Lord will bless his truth to all our hearts for Christ's sake we ask it. Amen. On the 18th of June, 1940, Winston Churchill, who had just been Prime Minister of the United Kingdom for about a month at that stage, made a famous speech in Parliament which contained these words. What General Weygand called the Battle of France is over. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of a perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. It was as a result of these convictions that Churchill set out in that speech in 1940 that he poured huge resources into the air war. In the next 12 months after Churchill made that speech, the RAF were to lose 1,250 aircraft and sustain 1,420 fatalities. Why? Why did he pour so much resource into this single battle? Because Churchill understood that air superiority was strategic. The Battle of Britain was a battle that just had to be won, no matter what the cost. And so he poured the resources into it 
and the British gained air superiority, and it's generally reckoned that they inflicted such losses on the Luftwaffe during that 12-month period that the German Air Force never really completely recovered from that time. But Churchill understood that they were at a moment of strategic significance. There were things that needed to be done in that moment, and the whole history of the future of the world depended on those decisions. And it's no different for the Christian church in every age. Some things are just strategic. There are some things that we need to do. Some people we need to win. Some places we need to go because those things are strategic at this moment of time. And a strategy is designed to identify the things that are strategic and plan to deliver on them. And over the next four weeks, as I've said, the leadership of this congregation want to identify what we believe is strategic for us and for the cause of Christ right now and to invite you to join us on that vision for the next five years. And over the next few weeks, you'll discover more about that and eventually you'll get a copy of the full strategy in your hand uh, on the fourth and final Sunday uh, of the series. But there's a logical question that comes first before we get into all the stuff that's gonna come your way in the next three weeks. And the logical question we need to begin with is this one, why? Why do we need a strategy? Why is this so important that we would set aside a small group of people and we would task them with seeking the Lord's will about this we, and to do research and to talk to those who currently serve and to pray and to brainstorm a way forward and then to write a plan and invite us all to commit to it? Why would we do that? Well, let me suggest a number of reasons. First one is this. We would do that, first of all, because there is a world to save. There is a world to save. Of all the creatures the Lord God made, only one developed a sophisticated society. And that, of course, was us, human beings. We are drawn together in a network of relationships which were designed to aid human flourishing. In that network, ideas could be shared, cooperation could be encouraged, the vulnerable could be protected, and the benefits could be universal. That was the plan. That's what human society was about. But something went very badly wrong, so badly wrong that it shook the creator to the core. We read in Genesis chapter six, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. But what God did next was totally counterintuitive. We read in the New Testament, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's not what you might have expected the Lord to do. Having seen the damage and destruction that men and women were doing to what he had created and having turned society from something that was meant to be good into something that was terribly bad, you wouldn't naturally expect the Lord to do what he did. But from that, two things flow. The first one was this. The first one is what God didn't do. He didn't condemn the world. He didn't write it off. 
The heart of God for human beings and human society is seen in microcosm when Jesus met the woman taken in adultery. She was dragged in in front of him, fresh from the activity of which she was accused, embarrassed, and ashamed. And what was there to be said? Her sin was obvious. Her actions were reprehensible. Her fate was predictable. Well, not so, actually. Because after her accusers had retreated, Jesus turns to her and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Jesus doesn't do what anyone expected him to do. He sets the woman free. He forgives her for who she has been. And he says, now go, now go, be free of that. Live a different life. I don't condemn you. I'm not gonna write you off like you're a totally lost cause. I'm gonna forgive you and set you free and give you back your life. That's not what we expect. I, I don't know about you, but when I see the adverts on the television about paramilitaries and some of the activities they get up to, one thought constantly comes to my mind. I can't help myself. I look at it and I think, what a bunch of scumbags. It's my first reaction. Every time I see it, what a bunch of scumbags. But if I was to react like my Savior reacted, then how I should actually feel is I should see that advertisement with an aching heart and I should turn to try to figure out how I could save them, how I could reach them. If we follow Christ, our role is not to condemn the world. The world doesn't need us to tell us how bad it is. Rather, we're supposed to do what God did do because we discover that what God did do was he saved the world. And not just individuals. We are hugely comforted by the fact that God comes to us individually as we repent and admit our sin and our fault and he forgives us and he places his spirit in our life and we, we come to have confidence and assurance for this life and for the life that is to come. And that is a hugely amazing blessing, not to be in any way undervalued, but it's not all the Lord is doing in salvation he comes not just to save individuals, but he is in the process of saving human society as well so that he may live in that society at the last. We are not going up to heaven. Heaven is coming down to us. And this place, this human society, this world is the place where God is going to dwell among his people. Paul, out of his own experience, puts it like this. He said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. God aimed to save the world. And to save the world, you need a strategy. You need a plan. You need a vision. You need an idea how you're going to do it. And we... Learn about Hudson Taylor that when he um, went to China as a missionary, one of the, probably the most significant factor in moving Taylor out of his life in England to the mission field in China was 
the passion that was in his heart for the huge need of the Chinese nation, all these millions of people, and, and, and conscious of the fact that, that so very few of them had ever heard about Christ, and, and the, the size of that need was what really broke his heart. One of his successors in the leadership of the organization that Taylor founded, which was initially the China Inland Mission, now the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, one of those who succeeded him wrote a famous hymn. And in one of the verses of that hymn, he expresses the passion that was in Taylor's life. Where other lords beside thee hold their unhindered sway, where forces that defied thee defy thee still today, with none to heed their crying for life and love and light, unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. If you read the biography of Taylor's life, you'll discover that almost on a daily basis when he lived in England, he was moved to tears as he prayed at the end of each day and cried out to the Lord for the lives of Chinese who had died that day without a chance find out about Jesus Christ. And it was that passion that took him to China, but it was also that passion that led him to a revolutionary concept. Taylor came up with a strategy that no one else had tried before in China. When he got to China, what he discovered was that most of the missionary organizations were situated on the eastern coast of China, on the seaboard, um, they, they lived in compounds there that were protected by the national armies, mostly of European countries who had business interests in China. That's where the missionaries were, and, and they never really moved out of that area. But Taylor had a completely different revolutionary idea. He realized that if the Chinese were to have an opportunity to come to Christ, then he had to move out of the compound. He had to live inland, and not only so, but he had to adopt Chinese dress, Chinese ways, Chinese food, Chinese culture. And that's what he did. And it was a completely revolutionary strategy. No one had ever tried it before. And there is absolutely no doubt about it that the, the size of the church in China today, the millions and millions of people who now know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord in China today are the direct consequence of that strategic decision that Hudson Taylor made. We have a world to save. And you cannot save the world without a strategy. You need to know what it is you're trying to do and how you're going to do it. That's the first thing. Why do we need a strategy? Because there is a world to save. And then we need a strategy because there is also an enemy to defeat. See, it's bad enough that we have to save people who are very often oblivious to the plight that they are in. They don't even know that they need to be saved. But on top of that, there is someone who is going to do everything in his power to prevent us from succeeding. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, one of the issues that we face is that in the fog of war, it is easy to target the wrong resource. We often hear about the fact that in warfare, sometimes soldiers kill their comrades because they mistake them for enemy troops. 
And so we need to make sure that our targeting is correct. And the deal is, in what God has called us to do, in the struggle we are involved in, people are the least of our worries. Peter says in one of his letters, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You see what Peter says? Peter says, use your head. Start to think strategically. Be alert and of sober mind. He says, realize who the real enemy is. When Team Sky was formed in 2009, it was formed with one key objective. And that objective was to win and to win clean. And as part of the strategy that they had adopted, they had to be clear what the enemy was. And for Team Sky, the enemy was not the drug takers on other teams. The enemy was the drugs themselves. This was a completely different approach to the approach of Lance Armstrong, for example. Because in Lance Armstrong's case, the enemy was the drug takers on the other teams. And so what Lance did was, he just took the drugs better than they did and was hugely successful at it. Because his enemy clearly had identified it were the drug takers on the other team. So whatever they're doing, I need to do it, but I need to do more than they're doing so I can beat them. But when Team Sky was formed, they didn't target the drug takers on other teams. They targeted the drugs themselves. And so they needed a strategy because they couldn't use that advantage that other riders were using. And so Dave Brailsford, who was the manager of that team, still is to this day, came up with a strategy. And his strategy was the practice of marginal gains. What he said was that if you could change a wheel set to give you two-second advantage over 150 kilometers, and then as well as that, you could get a more aerodynamic form of handlebars that maybe gave you another 0.5 of a second, and you could get, you could get more aerodynamic pedals, give you another 0.5 of a second. If you add up these marginal gains, you were beginning to make enough time to win a race like the Tour de France. He had a strategy because there was an enemy to defeat and the enemy he had to defeat was drugs. And so he came up with the idea of marginal gains and it was hugely successful for the Sky team. We need to be sure because there's an enemy to defeat. We need to be sure we got the right target in our sights. Jesus made sure he hit the right target. Jesus had a strategy. Paul says in Colossians 2, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus understood who his enemy was. He targeted that enemy. Jesus did not march on Rome. His enemy was not men and women. He did not march on Rome. He went to the cross. And that was because he had the real enemy in his sights. There is a world to save, but there is an enemy to defeat who is determined to make sure we don't save the world. And we need to be sure that we have the real enemy in our sights. And that requires a strategy.
But finally, we need a strategy because there is a prize to win. There is one prize to win, not many. Because this race, if you like, that we're involved in is a bit like being on an athletics team. An athletics team has loads of different disciplines, but there's only one prize. And that one prize is that your team, when the points are added up, has more points than everyone else. And each individual discipline contributes towards that win, the win of the one prize. As I, I think I mentioned you before, when I was at school in its summer term, I used to run... Uh, Athletics, I used to run five and 10,000 meter races and I remember running one day in a race and uh, there was only three people in the race, okay, there was me and then there was Derek Rowe who was also from my school who was the Northern Ireland Cross Country Champion and as well as that there was a person from the other school uh, and that person was the Northern Ireland 10,000 meters champion so like there was really no point in me bothering to start the race in the first place. Things were made a little bit more complicated by the fact that I borrowed a pair of spikes from a friend and discovered that one of the spikes was forcing its way through the sole of the shoe, which by the end of the 10,000 meters meant it was exceptionally painful. So that's sort of my excuse for the fact I was lapped by both the other people in the race, okay? But I finished. And here's the thing, I was third. Okay, I was last as well, but, <laughs> but I was third. And you got points for being third. And the points I got for being third pushed my team over the line and we won that day. There's only one prize, but every individual discipline contributes towards that prize. We have to run our race. We have to deliver strategically on where we are and then we win that one prize. Paul, uh, it, it, we sing about that price sometimes. There is a higher throne than all this world has known where faithful ones from every tongue will one day come. Before the sun we stand, made faultless through the Lamb, believing hearts find promise grace. Salvation comes. One price. And Paul talks about that price. He says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Paul has an athletic picture in mind here. He's imagining runners running in a race. And he develops the significance of this picture elsewhere in his first letter to the Corinthians when he says this, run in such a way as to get the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Contribute where you are, so that in the end of the day, the church of Jesus Christ wins the prize. For Paul, that meant one thing. He talks about it in his writings. To me, he says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That was not Paul's first choice. That was not what was uppermost in Paul's mind when he met Jesus Christ and surrendered his life to him because he tells us about it in his own writings that what really moved Paul's heart and brought him to agony and, and passion was the fate of his own people, the Jews. He says to the Romans in his letter, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish 
in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. The most intuitive thing for Paul to do the moment he was converted to Christ was to go preach in the synagogues and plead with his own people, try to tell them that Messiah had come and everything that they had lived for and waited for in the totality of the history of their people had come to pass. That's what he really wanted to do. But if the prize was to be won, that was not his job. To him was given the strategic responsibility to go and reach the Gentile world. And Paul threw himself into that work. That became the only strategy that he had. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And because Paul did that, you and I are here tonight. Paul founded the mission that ended up in Europe. And because of his faithfulness, because of the fact that he accepted the strategic decision that the Lord had called him to accept, that he should turn away from his own people for whom his heart was breaking and go reach the Gentiles with everything that he had because he did that, we're here tonight. There is only one price. It's not like a school price giving. Not that I know much about school prize givings because I never really won any prizes at school. I think I won one in my final year. I never paid that much attention to those who won prizes at school. If I was at a school prize given, it was because I was either singing in the choir or singing as a solo the school song. After all these years, I still remember it. When loyal James in Ulster first established his plantation, the noble planters for their sons soon craved an education. And so in 1617, our forebears needs discerning. Matthias Springham Armiger, I don't know what an Armiger is, established his foundation. Be it latitude or longitude, the poles or the equator, you'll always find a man who boasts that foils his alma mater. <laughs> what do you think, eh? Yeah. There are two more verses I won't bore you with, okay? I mentioned this this morning. Guess who else in the congregation remembers their school song? Come on, guess. Well, John Hannah's not here. He probably does. That was, that was also my family's first guess. No, Brian Givens. I mean, it's so totally predictable. Brian Givens remembers his school song too, okay? So... Uh, yeah, so that, that was kind of my involvement in prizes. That was my involvement in prize giving at school. However, when my kids went to BRA, I was a little bit more interested in prize giving because uh, some of them actually managed to win prizes. And so it was always kind of a good day when you went to it. And th at BRA, there was a long list of prizes, you know, including, and for me, this was like, you know, only a grammar school could give a prize like this. That, at the, that there was the J.C. Pickin Bat it's a cricket bat, all right? And, and whoever was the best, I, I need to be really careful about it because Chris McCary was at the 9.30 this morning. Chris McCary won the JC picking bat, okay? So um, what an honor, you know? And there was this long list of prizes, you know, that, and different people got to win them. But here's the thing. When you and I get to heaven, there is going to be no Apostle Paul Award for the most innovative church. 
There's not going to be the John Calvin Award for the most sound Christian. Not going to be any awards like that at all. There's going to be just one prize. Life with its path before us lies. Christ is the way and Christ the prize. There's only one prize to win. The church of Jesus Christ is only going to win that prize if we play our part where we are right now. If we hear and understand from the Lord what it is strategic for us to do right now and then give ourselves 100% of that, that's the only way the one prize will finally be won. Sandy Miller tells the story um, early in his days in HTB. He was sitting one Sunday morning um, in church up at the front. And during the opening act of worship, he noticed a young man um, in his early 20s come in through the back door of the church, have a look around the 20 or 30 elderly people who were there in the assembly and then turn on his heel and walked out. And Sandy says, at that moment of time, quietly prayed to the Lord and he made a vow in his heart. And he said, Lord, if you will show me what to do, I will do whatever I need to do to make sure that the next 20-year-old young man or young woman who enters the door of this church will not leave, but will stay. And so over the next months, that's what he did. He set himself about to do that. And where HTB is placed in London, around that church, there are literally thousands every day, thousands of 20 or 30-somethings who work there, study there, live there. And he set himself to change whatever needed to be changed. It was a strategic decision to win that generation. And so he made a number of initial changes. Then he got a phone call one day from a member of the congregation who said, Vicar, I need to come and talk to you about all the changes we're making in church. Sandy says, actually, at that point in time, they had changed very little. He said, like, if the man only knew what I intended to change in the next while, he might have called me even sooner. But anyway, so Sandy went round to his house and sat down, very pleasant cup of tea, china cups and all the rest of it. And, and the man said to him, Vicar, explain to me what this is that we're doing. And Sandy told him about the young man who had come into church. And then he said to, to the member of the congregation, he said to him, tell me this. He said, when was the last time that you noticed anyone under 30 years of age in our worship? And he said the man was quiet for a moment or two. And then he looked at Sandy and he said, tell me what it is that we need to do. He was a soldier, now retired, reached quite a rank in the army. I can't remember if it was a colonel or something like that. But he had been quite, had quite a senior rank in the army. Here was a man who was used to strategic decisions. Here was a man who understood the importance of strategy. And, even, and he knew that at times, therefore, you took strategic decisions which could cost a lot. But you needed to take those decisions because of what you needed to achieve. And so as soon as the vicar pointed out to him what the problem was, he could see that so clearly. He understood the need to take a strategic decision. And then once that decision was taken, tell me what it is that we need to do. He would give himself 100%, whatever the cost, to that strategic decision. We have a world to save. We have an enemy to defeat 
We have a prize to win. There's only one prize. And we have to play our part in doing that. And to play our part, we need to be strategic. We need to decide what matters most because we can't do everything. Even a church this size, we can't do everything. We have to decide what is the most important thing the Lord Jesus wants us to do right now. And that may be hugely counterintuitive to us. It certainly was to Paul. What God asked him to do is not what he would have chosen to do himself. And once we know what it is that the Lord is telling us to do, we've set a team of people aside and we've asked them to seek the Lord's face about this. They've come back. The session has accepted their wisdom. We're going to roll this out over the next number of weeks. Here's the thing. This is why we need it. Because we have to do these things. We have to achieve these things. We have to be part of what God is doing right now. The challenge of the next few weeks for us is that we need to step up now. We need to throw ourselves into this strategy with everything that we have so that we can win the prize.